Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we welcome the wildlife presenter, naturalist, writer and adventurer, Steve Backshall. Steve had an idyllic start to life in many ways. He was able to go to amazing destinations on holiday with his parents who worked on airlines. He had a menagerie at home with countless animals and found peace at his local smallholding in Bagshot. But he never felt he could express his passion because he worried that the other kids would tease him for it. In fact, there were a few moments where Steve came up against the bullies in his childhood, not least the time where they crashed his mum's car and put the blame on him. Steve shares how he holds on to a lot of sadness for not being able to fully embrace his passion for wildlife in his youth. I went to a quite ordinary, comprehensive, in the middle of a council estate, where that isn't what life was like. You know, life, life was all about being cool, having the right trainers, being good at basketball, good at fighting, and I was good at none of those things. Mm. And I could never have gone into school and gone, oh my God, I saw my first swallowtail butterfly at the weekend because I'd have been dumped face first down <laughs> in a dustbin, you know? What did you make of Steve, Rachel? The thing that I found most fascinating is that the wildlife that we think of as the most dangerous, like sharks, he says actually aren't at all. They're not exactly cuddly, but he says they're not really dangerous so long as you treat them in the right way. It is astonishing that despite the wildlife he's encountered from hornets, crocodiles, pythons, hippos, piranhas and more, his most extreme injury was from an accident which occurred when he was meant to be doing a leisurely hike in Gloucestershire. But Steve made it clear to us that animals are misunderstood and there are so many more dangers that we encounter in our everyday life. Working with animals is, is not a particularly dangerous job. I certainly feel more intimidated and more at risk in a big city with than humans. I ever do in the middle of the rainforest. I would say going out on the road, cycling on my, my bike is the most dangerous thing I do. And it's, you know, diving with whales, diving with sharks isn't even close to going out for a cycle. And Steve was very keen to stress his dismay when Prime Minister Rishi Sunak watered down the government's net zero commitments recently. He personally felt let down because of the work he'd done with the government. He'd stood alongside ministers promoting the environmental agenda and he felt that it was a mistake for the Prime Minister to reject some of those proposals that he felt were so important. There was a concerted decision within the Cabinet that speaking out against what people consider to be an excessive influence 
on us and our lifestyles from environmentalists is going to be a vote winner. And that's really, that is a nasty thing to want to be hearing. Steve's new series is all about whales, and we started by asking him why he decided to take them as a subject. I think we're entering a very exciting time for research and understanding the the world of the whale. It's an animal that, until very recently, a lot of our information has come from the bad old days of commercial whaling, or from the very few moments when a whale crests the surface and you see its spout and you see its tail flukes. But the many moments in between those breaths, when they're stalking the deepest parts of our ocean are, are things that have been total mystery to us until very, very recently. And I think being able to share, share the seas with them, to swim alongside them, to look in their eyes and see the sentience is something incredibly exciting. And I really hope that people who watch this are going to come away with a greater appreciation of how close we are to whales. And did you find they were just too almost kind and gentle compared to sharks because you're known for, you know, vicious, dangerous animals. And somehow the whales feel calmer and more relaxed. I would say in many ways, it can be the exact opposite. Mm. So, you know, in the marine pecking order, the big dolphins, particularly the orca, are above the very biggest of the sharks and they're only natural predators. And whereas you never see cruelty from sharks, you do see it from orca. You do see it from dolphins. Yeah. Oh, really? And there is, there is wastage, there is excess. There are uh, things that you can watch and find very uncomfortable in ways that, that where some whales deport themselves, which you don't see with sharks. And what were the worst examples? I, I mean, I've seen a lot of orca because they have such complex methods of hunting, which they're developing all the time and being quite creative about. They need to teach their youngsters how to do those hunting mechanisms. And when they're teaching, it's not feeding. It's a very different stage of life for them. So they could go through the whole process of hunting a great whale or hunting a a giant uh, sea lion and then not eat it. And then sometimes they, they could well be feeding on another great whale or a big shark and they might only excise its squalene rich liver and then leave the whole rest of the animal. <laughs> So or with like a whale, a just eat its tongue. Trap playing with a mouse, basically. Yeah, mm. yeah. So is that what they were doing? There were those stories about orcas chasing fishing boats. Is that I think what that's something very different. Okay. I, I think it's really tricky because, as I said, we're, we are really only starting to scratch the surface with our understanding of these animals. With orca, we're starting to realise that there are different, what, what are called ecotypes that are essentially clans or tribes, each of which may have a completely different language, culture, way of behaving, prey source, they may appear slightly Mm. different. Their entire behavior may be completely at odds with another pod living in the same area. And when it comes to the, what I would interpret as being playing with fishing boats in the Mediterranean, my personal take on it is that it's probably going to be a very, very few animals. It could well be young, boisterous Mm. males. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Trying out things in their world. And where that goes, who knows? They may well get bored of it and stop completely. It could be a a behavior that is transmitted throughout the entire Mediterranean population of of orca, and then all of a sudden they're all going to be doing it. And we, we just don't know. 
And did you find that they were sort of incredibly intelligent in a way that you didn't think they'd be? Or is it too difficult to compare them to humans in some ways? Not at all. I think that, you know, as biologists, we've long been taught that our closest relatives are the great apes. And that's completely true. But in many ways, when you start to analyze whale societies and cultures they're even closer to us as human beings you know you look at some whales that you know not only do they they feed their young with milk and they breathe air but they will cherish friendships they will you know put themselves altruistically before their youngsters sacrificing their lives for their for their youngsters they will grieve their dead they play tricks on each other they so have, the women do more work than the men sometimes <laughs> yeah so the in the orca it's a it's a, a matriarchy and it's all about girl power and the, the females despite the males being much bigger the females are very much in charge uh-huh. and actually an interesting one is um in sperm whales because in sperm whales the males are much much bigger their orders of magnitude bigger but when you look at the proportion of the brain that's set aside for complex processing, the females are much, much cleverer. And it's thought that that is a, a, a connection to the fact that they are much more social and much more communicative. So the females will just hang out together at the surface, chatting, communicating <laughs> in very social groups. Well, the males thunder off on their own <laughs> all the way up that's to the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, and they are nothing like as clever as the as the females, and probably because of it. Glad to hear it. And um, did you feel that they were communicating with you, or you were communicating with them? Sometimes. So one of, one of the most tricky things about this, as opposed to working with sharks, is you know everything has to be completely on their terms, and you can, in certain situations, and repeatedly on on the filming of this series, spend several weeks just you know hanging in the water hoping and having every single animal just swim past you and totally ignore you. And then just one kind of catches you and goes, oh, well, that's interesting. What's that? And we'll come back and choose to interact with you, to play with you, sometimes to dance with you underwater. And that can be in an animal that can be, you know, as, as heavy as a fire truck. And those moments when you look into their eyes and you can see them figuring you out, sussing you out, trying to find out what you are. Often you can feel it because they're using sound as a way of analyzing things in their world as well. So you've got this whole three-dimensional experience where you can feel their sounds the singing through your body. Oh. Yeah, um, is absolutely overwhelming and very emotional. Was it scary too? Not really, no. I think that I have been doing this for a long time and wouldn't put myself into those situations if I thought that they were dangerous because these are very, very big animals that mm. obviously have the power to do you great mm. harm should they choose to. But as long as you don't push it, what what they do is they just go. They just swim away. You know, they're, they're not going to turn on you and, and attack you as long as you're not pushing the envelope. And that has been borne out by years and years and years of experience. Do you feel just captivated by anything to do with the sea or more at home there almost than on land? I... I think it's it's an environment I find endlessly rejuvenating. It's one that gives me so much energy. It's one where you can, as, as a human being, feel very, very small, very fragile, very vulnerable. You know, certainly when you head up to the Arctic Ocean or down to the Southern Ocean and giant waves can come out of nowhere and tower over your boat and you can be hit with incredible storms and then the next day have water that is like velvet, which, you know, has not a ripple on it for miles and miles. And I love that. I love that changeability, the sense of the unknown and the unpredictable. Mm. We want to take you back to your childhood, to wh- where your sense and love of 
travel and and of danger and of animals came from. Can you tell us a little bit about your very first memories? So I'm very lucky in that my parents are both massively, massively into the outdoors and animals. I, I would say animals advisedly rather than, you know, my passion is is more nature. But for, for mum and dad, it was very much the outdoors, adventure and animals. And we were surrounded as, as kids by rescue animals that they had from just about every sanctuary and person who didn't want their animal for miles and miles around our house. And that seem to be a very natural way for, for us to live our lives. So what animals did you have? Oh, God, we had all sorts. We had, we had everything from peacocks and ducks and geese to an asthmatic donkey, a <laughs> couple, yeah, of, that couple of psychotic geese. Huh? Uh, we, had, we had horses, we had rabbits, we had goats. I used to milk the goats before going into school every morning. So it was, it was a proper menagerie. Mm-hmm. Which is your favourite then? Um, I mean, I, I look back on it with with great with great fondness but actually whereas my my sister was very much into all all of that you know domestic animal mm. kind of connections for me it was much more even from a very young age it was all about the the wild so i was much more interested in going out and looking for grass snakes in the compost heap than i was in in fact you know milking the goat was a job that i hated having to <laughs> do it drove me insane um but the, I think even bigger than that, actually, was the fact that both my mum and my dad worked for the airlines and had done their whole lives. And so we had free travel around the world. And so, you know, we we weren't massively well off, but it was better and cheaper for us to go to Africa or to India than it was for us to go to Bognor Regis. So we, you know, had these incredible trips from a very, very young age, but we'd rock up in in the middle of nowhere in some developing nation with no plan, no idea, no clue. And they had to be incredibly self-reliant. I have no idea how they did it now. Now, as, as a parent of young kids, the thought of rocking up in the middle of New Delhi without even a hotel to go to, I mean, it makes me want to break out in a cold sweat. <laughs> yeah. My mum and dad did exactly that. And that put in both of us, my sister and I, this sense that you could just be dumped anywhere in the world and things would be okay. Right. And and that, I think, was a big part of us becoming travellers. And, and that led on to, to, you know, being able to go on big expeditions and always feel like, you know, if you if you set all the right things in motion and you've got the right experience, then things will be okay. And um, was it always about nature? So were you always pushing yourself, climbing trees, going that extra mile? Or was it about the travel? I would say for me, it was about uh, wildlife very yeah. much from from a young age. Um, for our family, it was it was broader than that. It was mm. much more about seeing as much as you can, doing as much as you can with life, savoring it, it as much as possible, getting as much out of it as you can. You know, my parents have both just turned 80 and they will be going away for the entirety of the rest of the winter backpacking around India because that's just what they like to do. And it's been such a big part of our lives and has, has given me so many different opportunities and so such a, a big, broad perspective on our world. And when you were young, you were called Manure Boy because your parents That's sold right. yes. 10p bags of manure. What was that like as a child? Were you slightly teased at the beginning or how how did they view you at school? Or was you, were you seen as very exotic? No, no, I, I would say that I felt quite uncomfortable with my with my passions and with my life at school. Because you were very different and different. I was really completely different to everyone else. You know, I was went to a 
quite ordinary, comprehensive in the middle of a council estate where that isn't what life was like. You know, life, life was all about being cool, having the right trainers, being good at basketball, good at fighting. And I was good at none of those things. Mm. And I could never have gone into school and gone, oh my God, I saw my first swallowtail butterfly at the weekend because I'd have been dumped face first down <laughs> in a dustbin, you know? So I I kind of came up with a whole different persona about who I was. Unfortunately, you know, the fact that, yes, we sold horse manure out the back of the house for people to put on their roses kind of blew that illusion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did people walk past every day? They, they walked past every okay. day and they were like, isn't that... Isn't that Steve Bachelor's house? <laughs> manure. What's manure? <laughs> Is that poo? <laughs> so yeah, that was that was me named for life. So did you feel you were being bullied? I mean, I I I went through small scale bullying at school, as I think most people did. But more dramatic was was the were the changes, the self imposed changes that I put on myself, where I didn't really want to admit to anyone the things that I was into, mm. the things I was passionate about. And if there was one thing I could change in my life, it would be to be able to go back to my early teenage self and say, what you're into is so precious and it's something that gives you so much. Forget about everyone else. This period of life is totally fleeting. Mm. Just own that because that is going to give you everything in life. And, you know, that's probably, looking back on it, it's only only six or seven years that I kind of pretended to be someone else and something that I wasn't. And that in the grand scheme of things is nothing. Mm. But then it was a period of time when I, I had so many opportunities, many of which I turned down because I didn't want to be thought of as being that weird kid who loves going looking for bird's eggs. Mm. Does it make you really angry that children can't express themselves in that way and there should be more about nature at school and less about fighting or sport or football? I see it as an opportunity. I have unwittingly found myself in a position where I I'm able to speak to a lot of kids and to families. And it's been it's been by far the most fulfilling thing about my job. Um, you know, I, I hear so much now about, oh, youth today and all going to hell in a handbasket. And I don't see that at all. Mm. I see young people who have a passion, who are already inspired and into nature, dinosaurs, mm. conservation. Um, and they're just amazing to be around. Young people who have a passion and are enthusiastic about something are, are so inspiring. And, you know, I have that power to be able to speak to lots and lots of young people and their families. And just to see that little idea that a life in conservation or marine biology or zoology could be a really good mm -hmm. thing for you. And I'm now at the stage in my career where whenever I go out and do big tours, like I've just finished now, you know, a good portion of the audience are youngsters who are at university and coming up and saying, I, I'm doing a degree in marine biology because I saw one of your programs when I was a kid and I thought that's what I want to do. Yeah. And, you know, one person saying that to you feel makes me want to cry. Having it happen over and over again is is just the greatest possible thing. So when you felt you had to change, how did you change? What were you doing? So I would never have let anybody at school know that, my way of spending a weekend was to wander out with the dog, go looking at the badger's sets, finding out if they were still in use, climbing trees, you know, figuring out what different kinds of birds were coming to our feeders, looking for adders underneath chunks of corrugated iron out on the slurry heaths and, and looking for grass snakes in the compost heap. That was my way of spending a weekend. And I would, you know, 
probably pretend that I would rather be standing outside the supermarket in the shopping center, just kind of like kicking it with the lads. And, you know, it, it was, it was a long period of time where I was pretending to be someone else, but looking back, I think just about everybody else was doing the same thing, Mm. just in different ways. So what was the moment that made you decide to pursue your passions and to not worry about what anyone thought? I think I'd, I'd got to a stage where I was working as a writer, but not doing particularly well. I'd had to move back in with my parents and I was, you know, funding myself by working in nightclubs and working as a waiter and things like that. And then I had an idea for a, for a television program and I tried to sell just the idea and nobody, you know, even replied. So I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go out, I'm going to make it myself. And I did. And I went out and I made it and I- Had um, you ever used a camera? Nope. No, it was all completely, I was, I was, I was good at stills by then, but I'd never used a video camera and I went out and I filmed it. The whole thing was filmed on my own selfie style. Which, what was the animal uh, you used? Oh, I, it was, I went to the jungle in Colombia. So I kind of stranded myself in the jungle. It was all about all the things I could find talking about the, the animals themselves, the jungle around me, and just kind of made it all up as I went along and stitched it together sent it to National Geographic, almost like a, this is the kind of thing that I'm I'm hoping to try and do. What do you think? And they bought it. <laughs> they bought it. They took me on as their adventurer in residence, which is the grandest job title in <laughs> human history. And then I was, you know, pretty much thrown in at the deep end to continue doing exactly that, kind of functioning as a one-man band, filming myself, researching, uh, editing it together, putting it in, into programs that we then put out on National Geographic around the world. And it was it was such a fast learning curve because it had to be, mm. you know. And I, I would encourage anybody out there who wants to get involved in the media in any way to just start doing it, just start making it yourself, and particularly the editing process. You know, it's not my favorite bit of the whole television business, but it is so important. You know, you get an edit suite, and you very quickly learn the things that you're missing, the things you should have shot, the things that you you say that are really annoying and are going to drive people crazy. And it it's, you know, such a learning experience. So when did you see your first shark? Were you always attracted to the dangerous animals? So I was I was really young. I was I was probably about 9, I think, and I was uh, on holiday with my folks, as I said, you know, being able to travel around the world for free was a was a massive bonus. Um and I was out swimming on a coral reef in Malaysia when my first shark came and swam around and around me. And I was, was crazy excited, totally by accident, wasn't expecting it. And then, you know, after a little while, it wasn't going anywhere. And I started all of a sudden seeing jaws in my head. I scrambled up onto a rock and I sat there for about three or four hours until I got such bad sunburn that I had to get back in the water <sighs> and then swam like Michael Phelps for the shore. <laughs> Um, I now know that it was a black tip reef shark. So it was probably a meter long and there is no way it could have done me any harm whatsoever. Okay. But how long head, were you? you I, was, I mean, you must have been had not much more than a meter. I was, I was nine, but there's, there's, mm. there is no way that a black tip reef shark is hurting anybody. But in my head, it was, you know, a giant that was going to tear yeah. me limb from limb. Did it have the triangular fin? It did. But I mean, I'm literally, I'm talking like this. It, <laughs> it, it couldn't have done me any harm unless, unless I was a, a very, very small fish. Mm. And it, it was at the time a very exciting experience that I kind of looked back and went, 
oh, that was a bit silly. You clearly weren't in any danger. And then, you know, over the years, I got more and more understanding and experience. I qualified as a diver and then as an advanced diver and then as a commercial diver and um, then started notching up the different species of sharks. And you start to realize that there are certain situations where it is, you know, as safe as it is possible to be diving alongside a shark. And are they wrong to be seen as villains then? Very much so. Very much so. You know, the the amount of people that are harmed by sharks around the world is absolutely insignificant. While at the same time, we are taking a quarter of a billion from the world's oceans. And if that carries on, there are not going to be any sharks around for my kids to dive with in 10, 15 years' and time. And how are we taking most of those sharks? Most of them are bycatch. So in the, the relentless search for high-value food fish like tuna and swordfish huge amounts of sharks are being taken others are being uh, are being targeted for their fins and then there are there are more taken in the various uh, methods of netting as well but there's lots of reasons why sharks are very vulnerable one of which is that they take a long time to reproduce so a uh, great white shark is reaches sexual maturity older than we do there are some species of shark that may take a hundred years before they can reproduce oh so if you take one before that it hasn't had any youngsters then, you know, Mm. the population is just going to crash. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Steve Bakshall. If you're swimming with a great white shark, do you genuinely feel safe? I wouldn't do it in a situation where I felt it was dangerous. So there there is a lot of assessment. I mean, that is absolutely one of the things you have to Mm -hmm. think about. There's a lot of assessment that comes before I would consider doing it, okay. and everything has to be right. The water clarity, the conditions, the time of day, the individual animals, uh, the amount of prey, the amount of you know, how the, the prey is behaving, the sea state, all of those things have to be taken into account. And if all of those are right, then I believe it can be done and be done safely and experience both of myself and of also of my, my colleagues kind of proves that that's true. What's been your most extraordinary experience in the sea or the ocean? Has there been one time when it it just felt completely surreal or magical? or Any moment where a, a sentient wild animal seeks out your company and wants to interact with you on their own terms, they're the things that stick with you. And actually on, on this series, there have been three or four of those exact things. 
probably the most dramatic was with a humpback whale and her calf. And we spent the best part of two weeks trying to film this particular association and got nothing at all. The uh, the whales were quite quite skittish. They clearly didn't want us around, so we just didn't get in the water. We just kept our distance, you know, kept back at a respe- respectful distance and didn't get anything. We weren't filming anything at all. And then on the very, very last day, we were no more than a couple of hundred meters out of port just after sunrise. And this female popped up with her tiny, tiny little calf. It was only a couple of weeks old. And it just left mum, went straight to us <laughs> and stayed with us for an hour and a half. And what it did was, the mum do? The mum just kind of hung there, chilling out. Every once in a while, the calf would come back down, come under her and and just do a little bit of nursing, then come back up to the surface and play with us. And did you get it, in the water? with? So it was myself yeah. and my, my camera operator, the two of us. Mm. And the calf was as close as you're sitting to me for you know a lot of that hour and a half, just spinning around. And after a while, as you know, I'd be doing particular movements underwater, the calf would be copying those movements. <laughs> so you're doing somersaults and things. So I was doing somersaults and twisting and pirouetting, and the calf would do the exact same thing. And it was just utterly mesmerizing. Amazing. And you've trained as a freediver, haven't you? Does, yes. Does that help you to get closer to the animals? Does that build more of a connection? It does. So I think that for for most of the work that I do, we tend to use scuba or rebreathers. And one of the main reasons for that is that you, uh, the cameras are more steady, you have more time, and I can also communicate to the camera. I can talk to the camera underwater when I'm, you know, wearing, wearing, uh, wearing scuba. Whereas freediving, you don't have any of those things, but what you do have is the ability to move unencumbered by your equipment. And also you don't have bubbles. And bubbles with marine mammals can be a considered a sign of aggression or threat. So if you take that away and you're working purely by the the oxygen that you can hold in your blood and your muscles and your, your lungs, then every once in a while, you'll get an intelligent marine mammal that will take you as one of their own and they just want to play. And it doesn't happen when you're on scuba, but when you're, when you're free diving, it happens a surprising amount. And every single time is, is just a life-affirming experience. What have you found more dangerous? Has it been being on land or on the sea? Is there a sense when you're on the sea of being freer, do you think, in some ways, particularly when you're free diving? Or is it quite difficult because you really can't escape if you've got something chasing you? I, I think that working with animals is, is not a particularly dangerous job. I certainly feel more intimidated and more at risk in a big city with than humans. I ever do in the middle of the rainforest. I would say going out on the road, cycling on my my bike is the most dangerous thing I do. And it's, you know, diving with whales, diving with sharks isn't even close to going out for a cycle on the country <laughs> roads around where I live. And I, and I, I you know, a lot of people would think that I, that's maybe me being a bit glib, but it, or might be hyperbole. It's not, it's absolutely true. And, you know, neither I nor anyone on my team touch wood in thousands and thousands of hours underwater with sharks have ever been harmed. So what would you say is the most dangerous animal creature you've ever encountered on land? Other, or other than us. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's absolutely no question that the most destructive animal on our planet by far is us. To us as human beings, 
none of the big animals are significantly dangerous. You know, the, the smaller ones, the parasites, the mosquitoes and the tsetse flies and, you know, the the, the, the vectors of disease obviously are, are dangerous. Snakes aren't. Snakes aren't great. No, that's true. But, you know, it depends. If you're someone in my position, if you're if you're a scientist or if you're a herpetologist, very, very few mm. people get harmed. The people that get harmed are those that are working in the fields without footwear, a long way away from medical care that they can't afford anyway, in places like Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, some parts of Brazil, some parts of sub-Saharan Africa. But that those are people who are living every second of their lives in in you know in a degree of danger and then don't have the ability to be you know taken to, to primary care should they get bitten do you have a sort of irrational fear of any animal is there anything like a spider or not no. snakes obviously but no no i don't I, I ladybirds think... is there nothing <laughs> i <laughs> no, hate swans do you really? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I, I live I live on the Thames. We have, we have with swans. Wings. We have swans uh, nesting in our garden, so I couldn't couldn't be scared no. of those. <laughs> you must be scared of something. Um, I, I mean, I'm 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 definitely scared of traffic. That's for sure. <laughs> um, I'm I'm scared on you know on a on a dark night on a Saturday night after closing time in a big city. That that definitely uh, definitely gets me nervous. Everything I do is very very heavily risk assessed you know i think all these things through if i was reckless and i've been doing this for a living for 25 years then i wouldn't still be here yet uh, and i think that that's that's true of most people in the kind of things that you know you might look at from the outside and think of as being just absolutely bananas there there are things that are very very calculated risks that i take and yeah i have had a few close calls over the years and you know a few of those have actually been on television so i you know can't pretend i haven't um but it, it's it's not a lie i genuinely have felt closer to death with big trucks thundering past me when i'm on my bike mm. and you once when you were in bhutan nearly drowned when you were going down the rapids yes uh what happened there so it was on a uh, kayaking expedition we were doing a first descent of a whitewater river in the himalayas and we were getting towards the end of a day on this first descent and normally we would recce every single new rapid we did before we we ran it but we got ourselves caught into this gorge with very very high sided rock walls and so we couldn't so we just decided that we were going to we were going to do it anyway and we pushed on down my uh, paddling partner Sal went first and then I came next and I just got it wrong and I got sucked back into this rapid at the bottom of a waterfall and came out of the boat and then was held underwater but luckily Sal battled back upstream, got a rope to me in and got me out. But it was it felt pretty close at the time. And then your um, fellow wildlife educator, Steve Irwin, did die after with a, a stingray. Did that affect you? Did that make you think again about your career? What impact no. did it have on you? None at all. It was an extraordinary fluke accident, wasn't it? Because the stingray yeah, went no, through his heart. Well, so, I mean, stingrays, tens of thousands of people... Uh, dive alongside stingrays every year yeah. and very very few accidents ever happen what happened to steve was not was not a one in a million accident it was a one in many billions accident it was a complete fluke a complete freak mm. and it, it's highly unlikely to ever happen again to anyone so it's not going to happen to me mm. it, it's you know there are many many other things that that could you know be dangerous to me in the future but it's 
I'm not going to be the second person to get stung to the heart by a stingray barb. And in 2008, you broke your back when you were climbing. How did that happen? I was, it was nothing to do with filming. I was climbing in the, in the Y Valley and I just had a bit of a, an equipment failure and I fell from about 10 meters up and I, yeah, I broke my back in two places and I broke my, uh, my left ankle as well. So how did you meet your wife? Because I wonder whether domesticity has changed you, made you think again about your priorities. You've got a great proposal story, haven't you? Yes, yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. So we, we met at a, a sport relief event in 2014. We sort of stayed in touch for a little while after that. She was running up to the Olympics in Rio. After the World Championships in 2015, we went out to the to the desert in Namibia and I had everything set up so that at sunset, we'd be up in the, the sand dunes as the sun started to set. And I went down on one knee with a, a, a ring that I got carved out of Cornish oak because she's she's from, from Cornwall. Her, her family and many generations from Cornwall. And I had, um, because she never wears jewellery with, with rowing, I had waited until she was asleep at night got up and measured her finger <laughs> to be able to get the exact right size of, of ring to, to, to fit her in Cornish Oak. Um, and she totally wasn't expecting it. I have no idea how, how she wasn't expecting that to be the proposal. But uh, yeah. And you're incredibly fit. Is that part of what you need to be to be an explorer? It's, it, it is really important. Yeah, I think that um, for for most people who are working in exploration, you would probably do one or two big expeditions a year and you would train very specifically for that expedition and get yourself in a a really very fine specific kind of fitness let's say you're going to do a great big row uh, rowing across the pacific you would specifically prepare yourself to be able to row but sometimes i might do five or six or you know on, on the biggest year it was 10 expeditions in a year each of which can be completely different you know one might be cave diving one might be climbing another one might be whitewater kayaking so what i have to do is to to maintain a very good base level of fitness that can be tailored at kind of relatively short notice to working into into something more specific how did did you train every day yes yeah yeah. do you train with your wife because she's an athlete at the moment, it's it's impossible because she's um, she's training for Paris next year. So she is a, a full time athlete. So she starts at six o'clock in the morning, and she comes back just in time to pick the kids up in the afternoon. And she is training with the with the British team. So she doesn't do any other training other than what's kind of mandated by the squad. But following the Rio Olympics, we had a couple of years when yes, we we did train together quite a lot, and that was great. It was really good fun. It's it's, it's a nice kind of bonding experience to have and I learned so much from her obviously as as someone in that you know elite field the little things that they do and do you take your children on adventures and expeditions with you or do you want to just protect them from any danger for us at the moment we're we're not really able to to take them anywhere because of Helen's preparation for for Paris it's it's very much my intention that we will do that we'll be able to kind of give them the opportunities that we've had and I think that there is there is a lot more danger to be had from the things that we consider to be a, a very normal part of everyday life, from uh, you know from from social media, from uh, from peer pressure, from 
from more conventional media, all of those things can be, I think, much more degenerative to a personality and to a to a, a, a physiology than going out somewhere cool, going searching for animals. Mm. So I, I very, very much hope that that will be a part of our of our future. And you went to university quite late, didn't you? Do you want to be a, an educator as much, and an environmentalist rather than a presenter, if you like, and an entertainer? Do you see yourself more as a campaigner, really? I'm not a campaigner. No, definitely not. I think I, yes, you're right, came to science late on. So my first degree was was in humanities, and then I came back and I started again to get my science qualifications. I, I don't really see myself as a science. I've got, I mean, I've got an honorary lectureship at, uh, at Bangor University, and I do go there and I lecture about uh, about science and about careers and wildlife media and that sort of thing. But I'm very aware that there are an awful lot better scientists than than me who are much better placed to be doing that kind of thing. I think that there is an opportunity which shouldn't really be missed from where I am right now, which is in that sweet spot of being able to talk to young people and to families and to be able to introduce them to the to the ideas, the big ideas, to the things that they can do, to the empowering you know potential of being involved in conservation at home and in a more bigger general sense. So those are the things that I really try and uh, you know embrace as much as possible. It's a very gratifying position to be in where I, where I am right now, and you know, very exciting to see lots of young people who are now just wanting to come up and you know grab a hold of the mantle and do their bit to save the planet. And whatever involvement I can have with that, I I will be very proud to do so. And do you think our generation have failed that generation? Do you think that there's a sense that that we really haven't done enough, and that they've got too much now to catch up with? I think that you know we didn't necessarily have the tools if i'd been asked at when i was at school what conservation was or what you know the environment was i'd probably have said something about sting and the amazon mm-hmm. you know because there was certainly nothing taught about it in school it wasn't a part of the agenda except in a, a way that seemed quite outlandish and now it it is a part of the curriculum it's part of the everyday conversation young people know about recycling they understand about climate change they are starting to ask big questions starting to find out how they can make a difference and while yes we can say that we have dropped the ball on a lot of conservation problems we we've also brought conservation to the forefront in a way that it, it has never been before and i think that you know yes we're we are riding the wave of an incredible young bunch of talented activists with incredible voices, amazing eloquence and ability to express themselves. But their passion has has come from a lot of the work that's been done in conservation over the last 50 years. We haven't been completely reticent. Mm. What did you think about Rishi Sunak's decision to back away from some of the government's net zero pledges? I was, I am furious and I think it's a real concern. I think that there has been obviously over the last couple of weeks, some very obvious swings towards populism. And in some ways, it seemed that when those announcements were being made, it was because there had been a decision that right now, an anti-environment message is going to 
win over a certain section of the, the populace. I don't know where that comes from, but there were a lot of things in that speech that were that were just utter nonsense. You know, talking about seven different kinds of recycling bins, mm. talking about a meat tax that doesn't exist. That those things were there because there was a concerted decision within the cabinet that speaking out against what people consider to be an excessive influence on us and our lifestyles from environmentalists is going to be a vote winner. And that's really, that is a nasty thing to want to be hearing right now when there are so many good things happening in conservation. Also, for me personally, it was a very bitter pill to take because I have, in recent years, very much got involved with with DEFRA, with the, the Secretary of States for the Environment, of which there have been a lot over the last <laughs> 10 years, to try and bring forward the new Environment Act, the, the, the Environment Bill, which I announced at Kew Gardens and again in, in Parliament. I was a big part of what appeared to be a, a genuine desire post-Brexit to put us on a world stage in terms of how we move forward with the environment. And do you feel hugely let down now? Hugely let down. You know, all of these, all of the promises that were made have been completely stepped back on. But then also, like I said, things that were never promises in the first place, that all of a sudden are are being used as a weapon mm-hmm. against, against environmentalists. What the hell's that about? Boris Johnson, for all of his many flaws, Michael Gove, for all of his many flaws, you know, have always seemed to at least think that it's it's kind of a legacy winner, potentially a vote winner. Yeah. To be at, at least, even if it's greenwashing, you know, even if they don't mean it, at least a sense that the, those are positive messages to be speaking about. There's mere universal horror at the idea that sewage is being pumped down. Do you think that's another issue they've just completely missed, that there's think, no way that can be a vote winner, is it? No, and I think that that is, that is an embarrassment that obviously most politicians now want to try and distance themselves from as much as possible. And for me, it's a, it's a personal big one as well, because you know I live on the river and I've, I've seen the way that not only do the water companies disgorge sewage into our, our rivers with absolutely no concern for how what the effects will be, but how they how they cover 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 that up, the absolute brazen refusal to take any kind of any kind of blame, to have any restitution for to to change the infrastructure that has allowed it to be possible. You know, on my own patch, when the biggest sewage discharges have happened. There've been people coming down at, at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, to do the checking, so that nobody sees them doing it, and there will be there will be no public announcement that it's happened. People are swimming in the river alongside neat sewage, mm. and the water companies, who are often fined vast amounts of money, do nothing to stop it happening. And when you live in a in a society like ours, where you think that there there should be, there should, you know, people should should be culpable for that. Mm. Big organisations should be culpable for it. And when you see that not happening, it makes you angry. Mm. I wonder whether you think it's sort of misjudgment politically to back away from the environmental stuff because the polling that we've seen seems to suggest actually it wasn't very popular. Well, that's that's the interesting bit, isn't it? Because none of these things happen in a in a vacuum, unless it's Suella Braverman just going out on a on a whim and talking about the police. These these things have been focus grouped. Mm-hmm. They have there are people behind the scenes who are thinking it through, talking to sections of the electorate and going, right now we think this is going to be a winner. 
you know, when the when the prime minister stands up and makes a speech like that, like I say, a speech that that, that contains things which which do not happen, which are not a thing, mm. that is for a reason. And the only reason that can be is that there is a belief right now that there is a certain section of the populace here in the UK who are going to be won back by that kind of rhetoric. And, you know, to a certain extent, they've got to be right. It's not no one that that is going to win over. And I think that's the worrying thing. I'm, I'm more worried about that than I am about us not hitting our 2050 mm. targets. The, the sense that, that there, there may well be millions of people in this club, in this country who, the second you mention the environment, just think, just stop oil and, you know, the, and traffic yeah, and, okay. uh, you mm. know, that they can be won over with populist nonsense. Mm. You're becoming more cynical now about politicians. How, how can you not? Mm. How can you not? You know, I, I mean, I, at the same time, I have to say that I have met, worked with some very impressive, impressive politicians. I was lucky enough to shadow Caroline Lucas in Parliament for a, for a short period of time when I was considering that being, you know, part of my my future. And what an extraordinary human being and what, what a job she does. And I, I think that, yes, there are plenty of people who are in politics for the right reasons, but there are plenty who aren't as well. And at the moment, it does very much seem that we are, we are slewing that way. Uh, I mean, it, it drives me nuts whenever anybody talks about politicians as, as not being interesting enough or, or, you know, not having enough charisma and essentially kind of being, well, they're not, they're not Boris Johnson. And it's like, well, that's what we want, isn't it? Mm. Don't, don't we want people that are just, you know, serious mm. in it for the right reasons? They don't, they don't have to be massive characters. They just have to want to do a job for this country. And I think that there's too many frontline politicians at the moment who don't and who are in it for the wrong reasons. Would you ever stand for Parliament yourself? So I very much considered it, mm. and it was it, it was to be the big ne- next stage in my life. But having, as I said, shadowed Caroline for a short period of time, I got to see how much of her job was stuff that I knew nothing about, didn't understand, would be. I felt a massive waste of my time when I could be speaking to millions of young people about mm. the the you know the things that they can do in the environment and not just here in in the UK but you know my my programs can go to 150 countries around the world if I was to go back to starting off trying to be a, a, a counselor and dealing with people's parking problems for, for a whole bunch of years, then I, I <laughs> mm. would not have that opportunity. And you're 50 now. What do you think you want to do next? That's a great question. I think that, um, you know, 50 for me wasn't as big a landmark as I expected, but probably because having become a dad quite late in life, I'd, I'd had my big change already. I'd had the big sort of thing that was going to be my next stage in life, the thing that had completely thrown everything else out of the water and, you know, made me have to reassess and work towards different goals. And and, and that is the next stage. It's, it's figuring out what my kids' passions are going to be. It's figuring out, you know, where they're going to go in life. And that's that's super, super exciting. You know, I've got these, these three young things, all of whom, despite the fact that they're three, three and five, grew up in the pandemic without any, you know, social influence other than our family. They're all radically different human beings. And who knows where they're going to go? Mm-hmm. And that, that's really exciting. And looking back to yourself as that teenager being teased for your love of nature, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I w- would love to be able to go back to that rather confused, pretending, 
young teenager and say all the stuff that you think is cool now and everyone else in school thinks is cool is not. In two years' time, you're not going to care about any of it. The thing that you are pretending is not you is something that is still going to be at the heart of everything you do when you're 50. And it is something that you know makes you happy because you know, you're out there climbing a tree, looking at a deer with its youngster off in the distance, and you're happy. So treasure that. Stick with it. It's something that can be your gift for life. Uh, and nature has got me out of some you know, dark places in the past, and it's given me the, the thing that I know if I'm ever struggling with something, I can go and yomp up a mountain and feel amazing. I can go for a wild swim and all of a sudden everything's fine. And, you know, that kind of panacea, that that thing that you can use to reset yourself, to, you know, bring yourself out of a funk, to to focus your mind when you need to, is is invaluable. It's it's kind of more than all of medical history, you know, bunched together. And it, it's taken me a long, long time to realize the the value of the very simplest things. And a lot of them are lessons that I was, you know, told by my parents when I was a kid, but I was a kid, so I didn't listen to them. And I think that, you know, it, it is the thing that will continue to sustain me if used properly for the, for the rest of my life. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. And our guest on this episode, Steve Bakshall. The series producer is Anya Pierce, and the editor was Callum McRae. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.